back, my friends, to another episode of Torah Game Changers, where we try to bring those who live in the intersect of Torah and technology, and they're using technology to further spread the Torah. In this episode of Torah Game Changers of Think Torah, is brought to you by Intentional Jew Podcast Network, where you can find lots of Jewish podcasts that make you think and help you live a bit more intentional. Check us out at intentionaljew.com. And let's get right into it. Here's Rabbi Simi Lerner. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Think Torah. I'm here today with Simi Lerner. He's the host of a highly popular podcast called Judaism from Within. He has a very articulate way of presenting Rav Hirsch's ideas through the context of the weekly sedra. Every episode is loaded with deep philosophical concepts and their practical applications. Simi's podcast is hosted on the intentionaljew.com, so it's a shameless plug for Intentional Jew Podcast Network. You can also find him on Facebook at the Judaism from Within page, like the page, share it, and give a rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps him spread his message to many more people. Along with being a Jewish educator, both here in Israel and previously, he was an educator at the JLE, the Jewish Learning Exchange in England. Simi is also an electrician. And I think that's so significant for me because it's the ability to be an educator because that's what's in your heart and also work in the world that we live in. And it's so Hersheyan, as we'll find out in this episode at its core. Simi's been podcasting for about three years and in the education world for many more. So welcome to the show, Simi. So can I can I get to know you just a bit more? I know we've had a lot of conversations, but sometimes we skip the basics. Could you let me know just a little bit about yourself, but more specifically rather than just where you grew up and where you were born, but uh, how did you get into this Rav Hirsch's Torah? Obviously, this is something that's important to you. And where did it where did it begin in terms of that? So I actually got into Rav Hirsch initially because, well, growing up in a religious environment where Hebrew language and Hebrew text is heavily pushed, for me, being dyslexic, um, that was quite a struggle. So even though on one level, I suppose, knowledge was going into my head, I was never pulled by the textual aspect, specifically the Hebrew, in my learning experience. So when I came across a thinker, specifically Rav Hirsch, I was able to grapple it, or grapple with it, in a way that I wasn't really able to do when it came to Hebrew. Because he wrote in German, but the best translation we have today is in the English. In which case... I was not approaching it secondhand through someone else's translation. I was approaching it the best translation that was available to everybody. At which point, we could even call it a Giver issue. I always joke that God made me dyslexic to teach Rav Hirsch. So it brought me into that world because I felt that, okay, I had, a, I had a voice here because I had a lot of Jewish education in my head, but the ability to extract and add and develop a thinker, I was always working at a second-hand level because of my struggle with the ability to read. But then with Hirsch, my ability to read English was, of course, better because I was brought up in the UK. I then sort of flew, and that sort of gave me a voice within the Jewish tradition because, well, 
I could work my way through it. I even used to synchronize um, the text with the, an audio synchronizer so it would read it out to me. I used to listen to hours of like mechanical voicing of Chorev. But anyway, that's another part. Before audio books were, uh, exactly. were around. That's fascinating. Exactly. So that's what actually it's an, an interesting side point. When I, I'm teaching Rav Hirsch in a seminary and I'm in a and other yeshivas and the point I make to them, especially if they're new to Judaism, the beauty about learning Rav Hirsch is that you immediately have a voice. You immediately have an opinion on what the person's writing and saying because he was writing for you. He wasn't trying to be convoluted. And the best translation is in English because he wrote it in German and no one reads the German. I suppose my wife speaks German, but barring that, nobody else I know reads it in German. Uh, so that's actually how I got into Rav Hirsch. And that really took me on my educational journey. Obviously, right. Obviously, it's, it's um, more close to your heart than just the tool that allowed you to begin reading, right? It's, uh, there's key messages and key, key philosophies that you try to get off and get out every and every class. So what, what, what are those? And what do you think is so important to you about those? It actually happened the other way. So why I bring that up first is because I had no idea about Rav Hirsch. I'd never come across him. It took, this was the direction. It was like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, it definitely wasn't the messages. It definitely wasn't his opinion. It was like, well, this works. I then started reading. I then became obsessed. His worldview, his approach, his ability to articulate ideas, his relevance to today's society, his ability and his breadth of knowledge that touches every single topic, but also historically the time he came into play. He came into play in the, he was born in 1808, uh, 1808. And that was just at the time of the, well, just after the Enlightenment. The, the world had taken a seismic shift. The Jews had suddenly been let out of the ghettos. The Jews had um, been force they had now entered into culture and society and there were different reactions to this there were those who shied away from it and wanted to go back to the ghettoized world and the others like Rav Hirsch embraced it and that approach to a secular world that he lived in reflects the world we live in today so I really felt he was talking to me taking me on my religious journey through his lenses because the ideas were so relevant and so easily applicable to the life that I experienced. And that's, that's a, you would say that's a key message, something you're trying to get out as well, the relevance of Hirsch's so It's also not only the, it's, it's, on the one side, you had someone who approaches it and he's not a, um, he's not giving you little ideas on the parasha because he, he spoke about everything. He wrote a book on Tamiya Mitzvahs. How many people in our tradition do that? I mean, you, you, if you ask a person, they've got the Chinuch, they've got the Rambam, the Ramban, they can name a couple, but Rav Hirsch was one of them. He went through everything laced it back to not only giving you halacha, which he did as well, but he also gave you reasons. Right. Each piece of what you speak about, like each week is just part of a, a bigger picture of his worldview and how he views time and mitzvahs and how he views like mitzvah observance. And a lot of times you get into those uh, bigger picture ideas, but it's fascinating how you break them down into, into smaller pieces. Thank you. So the, the, the idea of, um, it being a, and also, by the way, one of the problems with people teaching Rav Hirsch in general is that um, people who like Rav Hirsch are obsessed with him, meaning they, they get enamored by him and they want to just teach him. Often they end up just reading him and they'll, they'll read him to people. And 
as a person who appreciates his language and his way of approaching ideas, I find that attractive, but at the same time, you're missing something vital, because that's not doing what he would want you to do. He would want you to teach. He was a teacher, an educator par excellence. I mean, he was the greatest teacher. Everything about our Jewish educational system in the West is based off his thinking. The ability to connect this world and the world of Torah, and looking at them as one integrated picture, which is what we try and do in our schools in the Orthodox world. And that ability to um, to sort of synchronize them makes him directly relevant to how I try and teach. Because when I try and teach a concept, I want to show that there's a thread. It doesn't just, um, it's not just an isolated piece. So I'll give, the, I'll give, a, I'll give a, an anecdotal example. So I'm giving a class to some students and uh, in Israel, and they say, we, 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 Rav Hirsch is in English? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, so we heard about him because our rabbis would quote him. So what people do, people use Rav Hirsch as a toolkit, which I'm not saying that's a problem. You can use him as a wonderful toolkit, and I love being helping people spread his ideas, but people use him as a toolkit. People throw him out of his nice ideas that they think support whatever they're trying to say, but they don't take into account his greater vision. So what I try and do is I try and thread it back to that vision. So when you have an idea on the reason for doing a particular commandment, it's threaded back to a philosophical principle. So if I can only, that's what I try and do when I teach. Yeah, it's, it's apparent that that's the, uh, that's the idea, that it's not a standalone thought, nor are you um, borrowing it. It's, you're getting into the depth. So uh, you, you take these ideas. This is obviously, uh, it comes off like that in your podcast, that this is not just ideas and things that you've, you've read and putting out a parsha of art. This is something that you live. Um, when did it become podcasting? And when did that, when did that vision to sort of make it available online to a greater amount of people? When did that, that when did that start? about five years ago, actually. It started before because I started doing something on um, WordPress. So yeah, 10 minutes of rehearsal and I used to just post it like, like that. It used to be an email list. But once again, even that, I got, I got a couple of hundred people on that, like signing their name up and getting it each week. Um, but... Um, and then it developed into actually teaching in person. Then when I went to England to do my teaching in English universities, British universities, I um, I then decided to do it as an actual podcast. So funnily enough, my dad went ahead and just signed me up. He's the one. People ask me who sponsors it. It's him. He, he's, he, he's for some reason, he's still, I mean, it's lovely for my father to do it, but he pays the $10 a month because he's been doing it for years. So he just, he's <laughs> still my dad. Um, so it's, it's you got your $10 a month in Podbean and you just posted out there and then slowly but surely people started subscribing and then it started growing and then i changed the name it used to be called the rev hirsch podcast and then i was like great i get i get rev hirschniks but that, that's that's nice but i wanted to expand it so i actually called it judaism from within which is rev hirsch's slogan when german it's a sich selbst begreifendes judentum which means judaism understood from within itself and that is a a, a almost a timeless way of uh, talking about judaism he parallels it with rabbi huda halevi as an example, because once again, Rabbi Huda Levi, in paralleling to the Rambam in the Maranavuchim, where rather than describing yourself in opposition, not that the Rambam disagreed with Aristotle and disagreed with Plato, he, he, he molded his view based off ideas that were around on his time. That would be an example of Judaism not from within? obviously controversial, and all the rabbinic shot, obviously. But from Rav Hirsch's standpoint, there was a disadvantage about approaching Judaism like that. 
So it, it, this really does get into complex ideas in terms of how can you, is it possible to actually step outside of your own environment? So for example, the classic um, accusation that's leveled at Rav Hirsch is like, you were supposed to understand Judaism from within, but um, this is a Hegelian idea. This is obviously from Kant. This is a, which is kind of missing the point. I think the, the point Rav Hirsch was making was um, appreciating a Judaism from within isn't that he can somehow stand outside history. I mean, he wasn't an idiot. He can't, you can't stand outside yourself. That's impossible. But in, different, in paralleling what the Rambam did, the Rambam was giving a guide to the perplexed, meaning taking the ideas of the time and see how Judaism can stand up philosophically to them, which means if he felt that Aristotle had a philosophical proof for something, then he would have to see how he could look at Judaism differently. If he didn't, he was able to hold on to ideas that Judaism held true. And people, which is an interesting point as well, because the Rambam isn't not useful because we don't hold Aristotle to be the last word on science or metaphysics. The Rambam is still profoundly useful because he still developed true principles of ideas that we may not, the original ideas we may not hold to, but the principles that the Rambam developed are profound. And Rafesh wouldn't question that. But he was point, his point was more to fit in line with what Yehuda HaLevi did, was try your best to develop a Judaism from its own axioms from its own principles but that doesn't mean obviously that you're not going to use the derech of your time of course you are that's why his slogan was tire and derech it wasn't tire and keep away from derech no the derech is the world you find yourself in if that involved secular thinkers Rav Hirsch wasn't the type to shy away from that he was an expert both in the Jewish philosophical view but as well as the secular so, of course, you would use ideas. Now, of course, you could probably find these ideas paralleled in the Jewish tradition, but that wouldn't be a problem from Rav Hirsch. He, he embraced the world, but if something was counter to the Jewish worldview, he was also not shy of saying, okay, this is out. Yeah, it's also so important to um, seeps its way all the way down into the name of the podcast is from, is from Rav Hirsch, too. I love that. The, the question is more broad here, but I, I love... Perhaps you can shed light from the Torah of Rav Hirsch on this as well. That, in terms of using technology to teach these to teach these principles and to teach this philosophy, um, does it fit in to what Rav Hirsch did in his time? And would Rav Hirsch do this now and use the technology the way that that we're using it, um, or is it just a vehicle? It's just the the way we speak today. And so, um, on, the, on the face of things, I wouldn't. I. I, I... It's it's a, it, it's a tricky thing to answer because it's like the printing press <laughs> was the printing but there were people there were people who were against the printing press but Rafesh, I, I also, it's interesting you ask the question because I I don't um how do I put this I don't it's going to sound maybe controversial from the people of the Hirsch I never I know I never met Rafesh and I only know him through his writings. But there are there, people ask me, what would Rav Hirsch do here? It's like, I, I don't know what would Rav Hirsch would do. That's not really where I'm... Rav, Rav Hirsch's standpoint, for example, people are... I'm, I'm bringing this up because people ask that question on Zionism. What would Rav Hirsch do in the... Uh, right, it's almost a not fair question in that sense. But I know that, that this question had had its um, counterpart in his time. I would so say missing, that yeah. any person would embrace it. He wrote in newspapers. He wrote rebuttals to people who questioned him in his own newspaper, in their newspapers. He he, he was the first to make use. I mean, he was a, he was. I mean, it, yeah. So he would be the first. Now the question is, how would he view the internet? Well, I haven't got a clue. I, I I can only envision or imagine what he would do because he was a modern man who didn't look at this world as something inherently evil. He looked at this world as something 
as part of God's creation along with the Torah. Meaning, it's almost the, it's, it's, it's an interesting way of phrasing it. Almost the almost the world come people like say Torim Derecheretz, and they try and appreciate what he meant by that philosophy. It's a way of phrasing that is that the Derecheretz comes first, not the Torah. Meaning, people get all shocked. Like, what are you what are you saying? The Torah is first. Like, no, you first exist in the world. You first exist. That comes first. From a point of view of appreciating the world, you first have to know what you know, and you only know that through experiencing the world. Then Torah comes next, meaning that happened historically, but that also happens as a person. You first experience the world, and then the Torah is educated to you. So his his approach to the world on almost a metaphysical level wasn't one to, this world is somehow a, a deceitful place. No, this, this world is a place that we is the vehicle for our service of Hashem, in which case, what else can we use on that vehicle? Yeah, and, and that has so many implications, that idea of, of Darach Haaretz uh, Kadma in that sense, but even in Chinuch, I, I say for, for me, it's important to have healthy, happy children that can experience and have a good outlook in the world. And then we'll add Torah to that because um, when they're happy and when they're healthy and when they can experience it in a happy, healthy way, then Torah can land and Torah can do something. So you need that, that relationship with the world around you first. And then once you understand the Torah on top of that, then it's cyclical and you realize that, you know, olam hafuch and that everything is really upside down, but it's hard to start in that space of this world is crazy and deceitful and bad, evil. Those are harsh words to start with. It's actually interesting. It fits into the conversation that I'm having next week on my podcast, which is on really focused on education. And the two principles I bring up, uh, it's, it's, Rafesh it lands these ideas in the parish or he sees the ideas drop out of the example of the Yavos and the, how they acted and what they did. But the point of education that he speaks about is that don't think that by keeping your child in a Torah bubble, you're somehow doing him any favors. He calls it the great, like, it's the greatest educational mistake you could do to your child or your student because you're setting them up for failure because if you don't see what you're not, meaning if you don't, if you have no ability to parallel your own worldview with someone else's, you don't appreciate your worldview. All you have is what you know. And then when you get older, you then see the outside world and you see this complex place for the very intelligent people who have very different worldviews than you. And these ideas are attractive and rightly so. And they're moral and they're profound and they're interesting and they're complex. And then you look back at your childish almost even if it, it became complex because you learned Gomorrah, that doesn't help. You still look at the core principles that founded your worldview as slightly childish because, unfortunately, they are because they never had to develop. He's, he parallels it with someone who has a um, who's afraid of the fresh air. His metaphor is illness, obviously. But they, if someone is afraid of the fresh air, and then one day he's forced to go outside. He'll get a cold, obviously. He stays inside all day. Eventually he'll get a cold when he goes outside. And he says, same with education. If you don't expose your child to the outside world... You'll, ne- you'll never appreciate the moral grandeur of what Judaism is offering the world. So it, it's much just to finish off, because people, people, whenever I give an idea that sounds slightly um, provocative, people are like, oh, so you think I should, uh, I should uh, right. go, uh, go to the end. They'll take it wherever they it, want. It, right? but, but also, that you, are you suggesting that I now go and like expose my child to the most, um, uh, uh, whatever it may be that you find controversial? Obviously not. Now, also, Rav Hirsch had the ability to foresee this rebuttal. Uh, he said that what, the example he gives in the parsha is that Avram moved to the Negev and he sojourned or he temporarily visited Gra, which is the capital of the Philistines. 
And he said, why did he sojourn there? Why did he go there? To, because he explained, because there's isolation, but there's also a need to expose you and your child to the outside world to be able to fully develop into a full person who's going to go on this Jewish mission. But he says he didn't take him to the Canaanites. Meaning there was a place that was too far and too bad that that isn't healthy to expose your son to. Meaning he had the ability to see um, in a world of black and white, he was able to see there's a, there's a gradient. So, yeah. So that, that idea of education and being able to um, view the world as not something that is inherently trying to attack you. You look at yourself as part of the world. So, but the, um, the idea of, of uh, that the world comes first, meaning the best way of putting it is that even from a philosophical standpoint, you have to, the first question you have to ask is, um, how do I get to know things? What is my epistemology? What is my way of getting knowledge? The next question is, what is there? And then you can ask, how should I act? Meaning, you you first have to you first have to experience the world and work out how you get to know things. I know talk, we're not talking I'm, talking I'm not talking obviously at the level of a child, but these are the questions that people have to ask themselves. If you already start in a stage where you think you're you, you it's, like, it's actually it's actually impossible to start in that stage. So it's um yeah I suppose that speaks to his. Do, do you get view. any? You mentioned this that people uh, push back on you do do you get pushback and what forms do you get that like your your uh, equivalent of hate mail <laughs> yeah sometimes people question like um to certain ways i phrase things because i have a very large audience i have buddhists i have atheists i have haredim i have uh, i have everybody everybody listens meaning i uh, uh, the way i speak and the way i present ideas my goal is for it to appeal to everybody once again keeping in a, the reason why Rav Hirsch spoke to me, and I want to pass that on to the next generation. Um, the hit back I get is, it, actually, it's funny, I don't really get hit back. I get hit back on the ideas when I'm trying to, it, but it's these, this hit back is within the Jewish world discussing what is the best, best option. Um, I get hit back because I don't, like, um, my the way I develop the ideas is very much nested in Rav Hirsch. Of course, my own ideas come out. But um, people who take a more Kabbalistic view feel a need to tell me that Rav Hirsch also knew Kabbalah. I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Obviously, it's not my... Uh, I mean, people show examples about how he um, uh, referred to the Zohar in different cases, and people show uh, um, his writings that he wrote on the side of margins, and what was his personal approach to the esoteric side of Judaism. Uh, there's a whole movement of people discussing it and getting all excited. I, I couldn't care less. I mean, he doesn't talk about it. It doesn't personally talk to me in terms of my relationship to Hashem. It does to others. That's great. Um, so he doesn't go there. So I didn't feel a need. To, so I don't feel a need to debate it or discuss it. I'm quite happy with people to um, to, to think what they don't. As long right. as they they're okay with me teaching. <laughs> it's fa it's fascinating because it's important as a teacher, as an educator, to get that feedback, whether positive or negative. Um, and it's harder online. It's one we can get more Torah out to more people but we get less feedback back. What In, in terms of uh, a live audience, as you, you do both and you've done both, both a live audience and an online audience, what do you find is the better way for Torah to be taught? Be it Rav Hirsch, be it any Torah. It's it's, it's like a step back, but... I'd say unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, live in person is the best. There's no question. There's no question. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare when a student you're speaking to students and a students are able to ask the question and then hear the reply and then think about it and then come back to you again when you see another idea because they think they've connected it and then you and then you develop it with the student. 
Um, online, I know for myself, I'll sometimes happen to listen to um, um, lectures that I'm listening to from uh, different professors. I have to listen to the lecture two, three times. And on the fourth time, I'll not that I didn't understand it the first time. I think I did, but I didn't. It took time to listen to it again and again, the same way I have to read refresh a bunch of times. Because when you listen to something, there is a delusion that you understand it. Unfortunately, you don't always understand it unless you're paying attention. So not because my stuff is super complex, but there is a, there is a, a certain um, sense of false sense of security you get by listening to audio that you think that because you're hearing it, it means you understand it. That isn't the case. And that's a thing that people have to know. So when you're teaching people in person, if it's a class where you're able to be interactive with the students, nothing compares to that. Fascinating. Yeah, the argument could be made just the opposite way as well. For me, um, being able to listen twice is sometimes I get that false sense when I'm live and I'm hearing and it's part of being there. You know, you get the scar of the going and uh, you put that all into your bag and you don't walk away with the content that you should. And listening it on online where you're you're not able to interject, you're not able to stop the class. And you have to listen to the whole thing in order to get the full idea. Sometimes it uh, gets down even stronger. But the argument can be made either way. And it's fascinating to see those who are successful in this world of online teaching, what they think is is still more important. I've, I've heard the argument either way. So it's fascinating. So I, I do hear you. And I'm without audio learning, I would not be where I am in any way, shape or form. So I'm immensely grateful to MP3, Audible, um, YouTube, whatever it may be, where I get my talks, lectures, ideas from, but the, the, that's why I was quite—I—I'm I, specific about when interaction is possible. That means I'll give an example. I was giving a class to five people. That is the ideal setting. It's not always possible, but that is the ideal setting. Each person there felt that they could ask. Each person there felt they were part of a conversation, not part of me lecturing to them. So that is always the ideal. But um, as far as I'm concerned, meaning. Um, even on Zoom, it's not quite the same. Um, so that the live interaction you get with students, I think, is the best. But then there's so many things that podcasting get me that I would never be able to get in person. Just the reach, the reach of ideas, the reach of knowledge that I can project myself out there with podcasts is, um, yeah. So that that also, but I definitely hear you. How it could be, it could really be parallel either way. I know we've discussed in the past Jewish entertainment in the sense of. Jews or rabbis entertaining without content. And you're you're one who I would assume your philosophy um, reflects what you actually put out. And everything you do is full of content. You you shave it down to the 15 minutes to the, you know, you pack the punch in there in order not to waste time. So it shouldn't, you know, you need entertainment, you go somewhere else almost when it comes to Judaism from within or the other podcasts you do. And I wonder if that's on on purpose. Is that like a a philosophy of yours or you just think that's you know you think that's what what people want so that's what you do um so it's the broader question of the jewish entertainment how do you how do you understand that is there is there value to it is really the argument so it, this is this is a tricky one because um for example whenever i go and teach somewhere i always wear a tie because I, 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 there's a, and when I'm working as an electrician, I don't wear a tie. Why? Because when I'm wearing that suit, I'm representing um, the, 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 um, I'm representing a certain, uh, there's a certain image being um, that I'm holding onto. There's a persona of, I got my smicha, I am now an educator, I am now teaching. And I almost imagine that 
I'm teaching Rehearsh, and there's a certain respect that comes along with that, that I have to feed back to the teacher. So there's a certain uh, dignity that I take with to my class. That doesn't mean I don't smile. That doesn't mean I don't, um, uh, I, I'm not, um, I don't know, uh, excited about my teaching. But there's a certain um, respect and dignity that I think comes along with the, with, the, with, the, with the job of being an educator. That doesn't mean you can't have fun with your students. You can't enjoy the interaction and the conversation can't become lively. But I'm saying there's a certain, um, uh, I don't know if the word is distance, but there is a certain respect or reverence that I have for what I'm teaching. I'll give an example. I was giving a talk in uh, in a university, and when I when a, uh, or in a high school, when I teach, it could be about how I teach, but it's always quiet. It's always quiet, and it's not because I, I make people quiet, not because I'm, I'm going to hit someone, but it's just that it, it's it's how I give because it's how I feel about what I'm teaching. Now, to take that and make it a form of entertainment. I wouldn't, I, I find that difficult. That doesn't mean people who do it, there's not a place for it. So from my point of view, I I, um, I find it difficult to connect to. I wouldn't want to listen to a rabbi being entertaining. It would be weird. If I wanted entertainment, I would go other places for entertainment that's done better. The likelihood of you finding a rabbi that's genuinely entertaining beyond the fact that you just know him. Often that's what happens. Now there are one or two rabbis... Um, uh, his name escapes me, but who actually apparently is genuinely funny. And he is able to give a genuine quality and be funny at the same time, which the proof of the pudding would be, do you expand beyond your group of students? Do you expand beyond your particular shawl? It's one of the things when it comes to um, numbers in the podcasting world, it's also a bit, it's tricky because if you're, for example, the rabbi of a, a shawl and you're being entertaining, almost ask to loyalty your students or your tamidim or whatever, they will listen to you because they, they, they know you personally. Um, but uh, I would not I would just find it bizarre why would I go to a rabbi for to entertainment? Not only because I think that there's a certain hit that the office takes um, when you're supposed to be, you're a rabbi, which means you're teaching, or you're a rabbi of a community, it's not a time. Now the question is how do they integrate their message into being funny? Okay, unless you're an expert at it where you're not going to be degrading the tire of your teaching and the educational value, at the same time being a good edu- entertainer, then I suppose that's a rare thing. But in general, it ends up being rabbis joking and making funny jokes and making in-jokes and that type of thing. So uh, I sound like a, like a stuck in the mud. I, I don't think I'm a stuck in the mud. And I, I agree with you. I've always agreed that, uh, like literally the same, just to reiterate the same sentence, that if you want entertainment, just just go. Go to people who commit their lives to entertainment. They're going to do it much better. Um, but I've recently, now that I'm in this space of podcasting, it's interesting because the argument could be made that being out there on certain platforms or in certain um, in certain feeds in certain areas as an entertainer attracts new people, and then you and then you can get them into your content that way. So it's it's really the outreach, uh, some sort of outreach philosophy, um, is the argument that you go out there, you look normal and funny and approachable. And then they, they'll come into your to the rest of your Torah and the rest of your, your content as well. That's the argument to be made. I, I definitely hear the argument. It's called, um, in, if you're more cynical, you call yeah. it bait and switch. <laughs> yeah. But, so whenever I used to teach, and I was part of an outreach organization, um, and I still teach for them, and they're a phenomenal organization. But the reason why I was attracted to them as an organization is because, it, of course, each individual rabbi has his own particular chill. But the title of the, uh, the the name of the organization was Jewish Learning Exchange. Now, the principle was that it's through education. And that's Judaism as far as I'm concerned. It's like when someone asks me, um, 
what does morality got to do with Judaism? I think, what doesn't it have to do with Judaism? In the same way, education, Judaism is about education. Our Torah, if a person is not learning in some capacity, they're not really doing the Judaism in the ideal way. They're not growing to whatever extent. I don't, it doesn't matter what they're doing, but static Judaism isn't ideal. Growth in Judaism is ideal in how you act. And that doesn't mean just meditating. We, we believe in learning for a reason. And um, I always found that I was successful in attracting students to the ideas of Judaism through the ideas of Judaism. Ah. Ra- Rather than, rather than, but, does, but, but once again, that doesn't mean I don't use the Derek Haaretz of my time. I'll give it just a slight parallel. It's going to sound really bizarre for people who are, um, be the way, I'll go for it. Uh, there are different philosophical approaches to ethics, right? And there's, a, there's for example, this one's called deontology, which works with uh, duty ethics. There's um, utilitarianism, which works with uh, the greatest good, and that would be the most ethical. And there's what's called virtue ethics, which dates back to Aristotle, which is that you would act in the way that the virtuous person would act. That's not important. What is important, what I'm trying to discuss, let's say, ethics in Judaism, and I'm trying to explain how we relate to the idea of divinity and moral command theory, and how does Judaism find a middle ground between some of these dilemmas that arise, I talk about secular ideas in philosophy. But what do I do? It's going to sound once again bizarre if you're not in the in the parasha. There are different um, ways of me taking those three ideas in um, ethics and making them interesting to a university student. How so? Once again, so what will I do? So when I'm discussing each one of these three, I'll parallel them with something from culture that they appreciate. So you have deontology, which is duty ethics. Now, what character in culture today emphasizes the idea of duty and doing what's right because it's your duty. From the Marvel Universe, you have Captain America. He emphasizes that. Well, let's break it down again. We've got utilitarianism. You do the greatest good for the greatest number. There, if you're in the parasha once again, you have Iron Man. You have Tony Stark's. It works. It's the thing that will produce the best. You have that in Civil War. The idea that it produces the greatest good, in which case we do it, even though it may not it, it may strike a wrong chord. And then you have Thor, which is the, the Greek god, which emphasizes being the virtuous person, even though he doesn't necessarily understand why. Now, that's again, I apologize if you're not in the parsha, but the point being, that allows me to speak to my students in a way that I'm using the the, the metaphor, and the metaphor means a bridge, to, to make it interesting. That doesn't mean my, my stuff isn't interesting and vibrant, and I'm not baiting and switching because I believe in what I just said. I find it more interesting because of that. So, it doesn't mean I don't embellish my teaching. I do, and I love doing that. But it means I do it in a way that I'm not switching what I'm doing. I'm not presenting them a type of Judaism and then switching it to something else. No, the Judaism I believe in, I always say to my students when I'm talking to students, they say, or there was a student who was like saying, how would you convince someone of God or Judaism? Say, I never convince anybody of anything. I'm not a therapist. That's the job of a psychologist. I show you my lens. I show you my way of looking at the world. And if you find that attractive, bavakasha. Yeah, I think it's, I think, no, I think it's an important, it's an, it's an important position you take. Um, and I think it's important for each person to think of it as they get into the world of online media and getting out their tour. What's the best way to get it? Because very, very quickly you get involved with marketing and how to get your podcast out to the most amount of people. And the competition, in, in at least in the second world, is strong, but it's not necessarily on content. It's more um, entertaining. And sometimes you see the same, the same um, 
different views come out when you come to YouTubers. Some of them are teaching really good content, but they have to make it very exciting with quick fixes and quick flashes. So it, you know, comes out there as well when you're when you're dealing with content. But it's obviously on a much higher level when you're dealing with Torah and God's word. So it's essentially interesting you say that because I was looking at some. There are there are some people who manage to do it very well with the quick flashy like cartoons. I think it's called Alpha Beta or no, I don't know. Alpha Beta, yeah, uh, Rabbi Foreman. Yeah, sure. yeah. So I don't think he does. I don't think they do podcasts per se, but they do vlogs and they do videos. Videos, yeah. And their videos are phenomenal. I mean, I I only it's funny, it's bizarre. I only actually saw the first one last night. Someone sent me one on something. Now. The, the content was real content. They weren't flapping around, but they were using cartoons to explain it. That's amazing. Take other things where they, they give like snappy questions and snappy answers within 30 seconds. I, I, I don't think you're doing justice to the question, but also you're not, you're not going to, people aren't going to come back. Um, and I think, as you said, the, the content speaks for itself. But also the beauty about doing this from a Jewish point of view is that I, I don't believe that I'm doing good only if um, 200,000 people listen to me. I think I'm achieving right. something if one person listens to me. Now, a person says, would I do the podcast if there was only one person? The answer is no, I wouldn't do the podcast if there's only one person listening to me because I'm also a product of my environment. I also like people listening to me. I'm not, I can't, once again, I can't escape myself. I'm still in my own, I'm still living in the world. But um I know that every single individual who downloads what I speak, I, I'm actually doing something. That education is meaningful in the cosmic sense. That's important. Um, okay, and then in terms of just I, I, my mission here is to inspire people who are maybe one step behind you, uh, who have ideas, who've been honing in on a, on a philosophy, on a skill, on something they want to teach, but don't necessarily have the push. And I, I really want to get more people out there doing doing good and using technology and innovation to do that um, through podcasts, through anything. So from your vantage point, from where you are, from your experience, do you have any tips for people just, just getting started or not yet started? So uh, the, but we were speaking about before I was approached, I was approached by a, a yeshiva I'm involved with um, and we're starting a podcast because it's a way of them getting their education out there, not only from a point of view of teaching, which there has to be, when you're, when you're involved in this, the only reason you can do it, when I'm talking about organizations, you have to be involved with it for the education. You can't be involved for it what you might gain from it, even though I really think you will gain from it. So um, the idea of doing it from a, an organization standpoint, I think they should get involved in it. But also, more importantly, uh, individuals. Individuals, and I, here's the sad part, I tried so hard. When I was in England, I almost begged people to start podcasts. I would go to rabbis in organizations, because I used to go to these... Um, these uh, um, they had basically rabbi conferences where all the rabbis in England would come together and they would have, I don't know, a speaker and dinner and it was lovely. But I used to sit down and I used to try and explain to these people that you need to start a podcast. And I used to almost, um, I, I would almost like try and explain to them that the reach you're getting by your personal blog that you're sending to, you you hit 20, 30 people. I said, if you have real content, it will spread. People spread the ideas. Now, it is true, Jews don't do that as much. They don't like spreading. They don't like liking. And they don't like, it's, it's, I think, I think there's, there's, I'm sure there's an interesting psychological explanation why that's the case. But um, um, it's, it's, uh, it, there was, a, there was, a, there was, people didn't want to get involved in that. People didn't want to go there. They were scared to go there. People who listen to podcasts, I think, are the only ones who are going to be inspired to make them. That's the problem almost. 
And I think that's going to expand as time goes on. Um, what you're doing is phenomenal. You're spreading this idea of podcasting to the Jewish world. Right now, people have a Torah anytime, which is phenomenal. But it's it's just, it's um, there's no, what's the word? There's no control. It's just stuff. Stuff, 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 stuff. So if you have your particular rabbi you like listening to, then it's just where he hosts his stuff. There's no quality control, but there's no expectation of quality control. When a person does a podcast, if they just record their shir and post it out there, it will only be so interesting. But if it's if, if people are encouraged to do it as a podcast, and how you speak in a podcast is a bit different. Sure. So, um, I don't know if that was an answer, but um, I, I definitely would love people to get involved in it. It's a world that's only growing, and the people who get on it earlier, you're just going to be like on YouTube. The people who are on there first uh, have 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 an advantage. Okay, so where can people find you uh, if they want to if they want to listen to you if they want to find you or you can plug anything here anything that you're starting you want to start. So other projects um, besides the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and other podcasting platforms, I'm starting a new podcast with some work I'm doing with uh, Darchanoim, Chappelle's and Midrashet Rachel which is called Jewish Perspectives, which is um, taking ideas within the Jewish framework and sort of elaborating on them, giving a different perspective, which sort of fits into their philosophy, which is on one hand, offering, um, giving the student a uh, independence in text to allow them to continue their Jewish journey, but also giving them a, a wider view of different Hashkafic perspectives that might fit into their way or their personality and not forcing them to, you know, fit into one idea whilst remaining within traditional Judaism. And that independence also sort of threads back to my whole reason why Rav Hirsch I found attractive. But anyway, so that's going to start soon. I'm very excited about it. All right, that was a really awesome conversation with Simi. And again, you can check out any of his stuff um, specifically on intentionaljew.com. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or bones to pick with me, um, you can email me at our own at intentionaljew.com. And if you haven't listened yet, there's a really great episode called Around the Shabbos Table that I get to do with my dad. It's out. It's up. It's going. It's running. It's awesome. Uh, let me know what you think. Give me feedback, maybe comments or even ideas of things that we should discuss on this uh, on this pod. Let me know. And as always, you're awesome. Be awesome. Rock on.